Hello listeners and welcome back. Welcome to the RPG Room. This is a podcast in which we talk about role-playing games. I am Paco Garcia, your host, and I am with my very much esteemed friend and co-host. Jim Pinto. Yeah, yeah, you got the hint. Hey. <laughs> yeah, it took a while. It took a... I'm... Yeah. I just assumed that you were going to introduce me because I'm such a good friend. Well, you are a good friend, but you have a mouth. You can use it. <laughs> uh, today I'm going to say Sawadakab, which is hello in Thai. So That's true. You said in Facebook the other day that you can say hello in 40 language. Yeah, I can. I can. Go. And so you want me to say all <laughs> right now. Uh, anyway, Sawadakab is uh, hello in Thai. And I'm sure I'm butchering the, the accent there. And then Kakumkab is thank you. So I've learned both in Thai. But it's just something that's kind of important to me when I meet people from their culture is to, you know, show that I understand at least a little bit that, of who they are and say hello in their language. And I find that immigrants respect that. Yes, it's true. And when you go to other another countries, and I, I know that because when I go to another countries, people uh, appreciate me making an effort in speaking Spanish. Right. Anyway, today we are going to be talking about a couple of things um, because my situation has changed somewhat in the last few days. I made an announcement in the website and um, I, I am going to be working for or with, I should say, a Spanish company called No Solo Rol, uh, which means basically not just roll. And... Interesting. Yeah, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be a an agent for the company with two missions. One is going to be to take their games and they have uh, an absolutely fantastic collection of really, really, really interesting games. The sort of games that you would like. Nice. Uh, seriously. And um, I am going to find companies out there in the English-speaking world who will be interested in taking those games and translating them into English and, co and, and selling them into the American and the English market or the Canadian or anywhere else, but not Spanish. Um, which is very, very genuinely exciting um, because, uh, firstly, they are a very ethical company and they pay absolutely every single person who works with them. And they do an awful lot of open license things. Uh, and not just the system. They have released or they're going to release a system called ITOS, which means milestones. And they're going to make it open licensed. But not just the system, but also the contents from their core books. So, for example, right now I'm reading a, a game called Cultos Innombrables, which means unnameable cults. Nice. And it's, it's incredible. It seriously is incredible. I've, I've only read about 60 pages and I am drooling all over it. I'll tell you about it in a second. I, I, I got to tell you, hearing you talk about something like that makes me... It, it, it makes me excited to, to do a non-protocol project really soon that is is dripping with a little bit more texture and not just setups you know hear what i'm saying uh, yes like a 60 pages of intro or something to get your juices flowing on all these details as opposed to me always leaving a lot of the con the the uh, the 
the construction in your hands at the beginning of the game. I think there's a place for both games, and I think there's a place for me to be designing both games. So to hear you talk about it, just immediately my brain is firing on 20 different ideas. Well, when I tell so. you what the game is all about, your brain is going to go into overdrive. <laughs> Seriously. <sighs> However, We're never going to get to the topic today, are we? We're oh, just yes, going to we talk don't, about this no, juicy no, no, idea, no, no. Don't worry, don't worry. We will, we will. Now, one of the cool things about these companies, well, in this game, they're not just making the system available. They're also making the contents of the core book available. So, for example, the non the, the NPCs that the game describes, if you write an adventure and you want to use that NPC or a location or a power or a ritual or anything, you can. It's totally cool to do so, obviously, as wow. long as you give them credit. Right, right, right. Which, which I think is absolutely... Brilliant. Really, really, truly fantastic. So, uh, shall I tell you... Where where do I get one? I'm going to have to learn Spanish just to play this dang game. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Now what I need to find is is, is a company, and and I'm talking to Modifius, because I know Chris very well indeed, and I think that this game will fit into his portfolio very nicely, and the production value of this game is just stunning. Absolutely stunning. Like, pretty much anything they are doing this moment. Um... Shall I tell you what the game is all about? Uh, I think you should tell everybody what the game is all about. Oh, okay. Well, I'll tell everybody then. Imagine that, well, Call of Cthulhu games, you always tend to play the investigator. In this particular case, in this particular game, you play the other side. You play the people who create the cults that use the mythos for their own benefit. So can I just tell you my very, very first post on Facebook, I think three years ago when I joined, Mm -hmm. was I want to make a role-playing game based on the Blue Oyster Cult Band set in a Cthulhu-esque environment, playing the cultists. That was my very first post on Facebook. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make that game. Now you can. Yeah. So now I don't have to make that game. I'll just play theirs. Correct. However... They have gone a step further because they didn't want to just reduce a cult to what we traditionally understand for a cult. So they went further and thought, right, what if a cult, instead of just being some sort of pseudo-religious group of loonies, what if a cult was a corporation that is using the mythos to become more powerful? What if a cult was, say, a drug, a pharmaceutical company that is giving you some drug that allows you to go into the uh, dreamland and that's how you get your... to to become quiet. But in the meantime, what they're doing is actually absorbing your vital force so they can worship whatever it is that is allowing them to create the drug to get you into the dreamland. Right. First hit is free kind of thing. Exactly. So Yeah. So imagine that you are actually that company and you're thinking, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm, I'm making, I'm giving these people what they need in order to feel better. And maybe you are a victim. You know, this company is a victim of their own success because they don't truly understand what's going on, but they still are using the mythos for their own benefits. Or imagine that you are an eco-terrorist who is in line with the deep ones because they want to... <laughs> Can you see where, where the game's going? Oh, that's that's so amazing. The idea that, that humans have destroyed the planet, so I believe in the 
ecology more than humans, so I become an eco-terrorist, and then I align with Cthulhu, just get rid of humans, because they're really the problem anyway. Exactly. That is, the full circle there is just genius. Exactly. The whole game is about that. I love it. I it's, love it. It's, it is, I'm, I'm enthralled with the whole thing. Absolutely just take, enthralled. Just take my money. Just take my money. <laughs> so that's the sort of thing that I'm going to be doing from, from now on. Um, they, I mean, they have a, a huge amount of games. They, they have a game called Dream Raiders in which you are an agent who operates in the land of dreams uh, because humanity has actually managed to find a way to influence real life through dreams. So now there is some sort of um, police uh, full of agents that uh, basically they infiltrate into the dreams of other people and get into the dreamland, the collective dreamland of anybody who's sleeping in order to be able to well, stop criminals who use that power in order to gain influence and benefits in the real world. Right. Um, they have another game called Fragments, Director's Cut, uh, in which they explain to you how do you create your own horror movie. And I had an absolutely fantastic idea that I have to give you, and I'd love you to make a protocol game with this. Okay. You are in a hotel. You and your seven or six or five friends. You are in a hotel. Somehow, right away, without knowing when or how it happened, you realize that you've been in the same hotel that you were there to look after during the winter, a la The Shining, mm -hmm. for six months. It's still snowing out there, even though it's meant to be May. <laughs> when you try to leave the hotel, right. some sort of storm happens that stops you from getting out. And things begin to happen. Things like somebody appears out of nowhere. You have no idea where they come from. And they say, well, I, I came to the hotel and now I'm here and now I cannot see anybody. And that person is being hunted by something that you don't know what it is and you need to find out what it is. Right. You want me to tell you the end? No, I mean, players get to write the end, right? No, 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 because this this game, I mean, you can do with this whatever you like, but in this game, you're meant to be in a movie, so you're meant to be a beginning, a plot in which you're meant to move however you like, but you're meant to be driving the, 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 the uh, there's meant to be very few antagonists and very few situations, so they are driven right. towards an end. What's right, as the environment narrows your options, you're driven toward an end. Yeah, that's a... Correct. That's a standard formula for writing a horror film, absolutely. Correct. What's happening is that you and your friends have been killed, but you haven't realized, you don't know yet. Right. And what's happening, the people who are appearing, those are the people who are being killed by this supernatural serial killer that as soon as he runs out of other people to kill, he's going to come for you. So unless you find a way to stop him from killing the living and destroying him, you are also going to fall prey, not just in this world, but in the world after that. I, I have a protocol coming that's actually similar to that. You're not in a hotel, but you're trapped in an environment and somebody is slowly trying to kill you all off so that they can have the host. You're all pieces of somebody's subconscious. You're not actually uh, individual things. You're just parts of somebody's subconscious that's in a coma. And so... It's based on a Cthulhu LARP I wrote 15 years ago, and so I decided to turn it into a protocol. 
Well, so I have something similar. So I think that's awesome. But I think that's a great game. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there you go. That's my idea for you. You're welcome. <laughs> Such a great idea. I already had it. <laughs> yes, exactly. But hey, Thanks. you know, great minds think alike and, and, and ours. No, do. no, it's genius. It's such a good mixture. I can think of the three movies that they're playing off of to write that story. It's it's really smart. I like it. So there you go. That's, that's my news, uh, which means that if you're listening to this podcast and you have a publishing company and you are interested in publishing games that no one else is going to have, that are really, really rare, but absolutely exceptional in quality, because I'm not going to promote anything that isn't, uh, please do let me know. And also, if you have a game that you consider to be exceptional, and it really has to be exceptional, the Spanish market is really small, so they cannot allow, they cannot afford to produce 30 or 40 titles a year. They have to produce a very small amount, like five, six titles every year, and they have to be incredibly good quality so everybody will buy them. If you think you have that game, I, I'd love to hear from you. I really, really would love to hear from you. So um, please do get in touch, which it would be great. Now, having said that, one thing occurred to me, and is that what happens with my blog and my reviews? Because I worried that if I, for example, I'm going to promote this game called La Mirada del Centinela, the, the Sentinel's Watch, which is a superhero game, uh, very Batman style, and I gave a bad review to another superhero game, people would say, you're doing this because you just want to promote your game, and question my ethics. Why, Paco, it sounds like you're talking about ethics in media journalism. You would say that, wouldn't you? But now. How can I trust you when you have a site and you've been so nice to some people that you like? Well, that's that's why I wanted to talk about this. We in the gaming industry, uh, both role-playing games and board games, we sometimes receive a lot of free games. And we are asked to review those games. And although I have had a very uh, strong... Um, drive, I would say, and strict policy to, to truly say what I mean in the most constructive possible way. So if I don't like a game, I will say the reasons why I don't like the game and not just say, oh, this game is crap. I will, I will give you some proper explanations. Um, which I have to say, hasn't always gone down well with the authors. Um, but when I like something, like for example, I like Mindjammer, I think Mindjammer is the best uh, science fiction game written to date. And Sarah Newton gave me that book. And and I, I've been singing the praises for months and months and months. And I will continue to, to sing the praises of the game for many more months to well, until I want to. Um, but I know that there is a risk and there is a pool to treat more nicely people who give you free things. Sure. Well, yeah, because you want to get more free things from them, and you're not going to do that if you're constantly giving them bad reviews. Correct. And, and and that's true. I mean, I've been in that situation as a publisher, right? I got sick and tired of my product. This was years ago when I was writing D20 material, being measured against other people's D20 material. I wasn't writing the same thing they were writing. I wasn't trying to write the same thing that they were writing. I wanted a, a different take on it. And this idea that every D20 book should be in the same exact format, providing the same four pieces of information every single time, was just ludicrous. And so I actually threatened at one point to stop sending something to a reviewer 
because he wasn't reviewing the material in the context of the material. It was always a measuring stick against other people's products. Yes, which, to, to be perfectly honest, I think if that is the way they review, you know, that that's fine. I know, for example, that is very, right. very common in, in the board game industry more than right. the role-playing game. You know, people say, well, if you already have a game that does this with worker placement uh, and drafting, then you don't need another game. So how does this game work compared with this other game that I like very much? Right. You know, for example, like people compare an awful lot. If it's a car game, they're always going to compare with Magic the Gathering. I mean, the number of times that I've heard sure. people say, it does what yeah. Magic the Gathering does, so why should I play this game? Why sure. don't I and, play Magic? And that's a, that's a typical defense, right? Oh, I've already got a game that I can do this with. Yeah. I mean, everybody says that about everything. and they But they usually say it dismissing the product without ever actually playing the product and seeing beyond the veneer and i i think that that that's part of the problem right i i just got a bad review from somebody a board game that i made um it wasn't bad it was just meh it was a meh review i made a fast quick dumb 15 minute dice rolling game it's not uh the smartest thing i've ever made you played dominari or at least you've broken it open you know what i'm capable of as a game designer in terms of a big board game I don't want to make every single game like that. So you can't compare a mindless 15-minute dice rolling game to anything else I've done if I've never done a game like that. So that game in and of itself can't be measured against Puerto Rico. It can't be measured against all these complicated games. That's not what it's there for. It's just to kill 15 minutes and have fun with your friends. And I think it accomplished that, but it got measured against all the things. And I'm not upset. And this guy's a friend, and he didn't actually give me any special treatment either. In the review, which I appreciate, actually, I don't want him saying a bunch of great things about it if it's not great. But I also don't want it to be measured against other products. And so, I think we're getting off topic of ethics. But I think that these these are all parameters into how we perceive what a review should be. Yeah, exactly. And what should a review be for you? I mean, you are a publisher. You are an author. For you, what should a review be? Well, see, this is kind of funny. I think years ago, uh, somebody in the industry, somebody big in the industry, reviewed one of my books, and he was a competing writer. And I didn't think that that was appropriate that he do that. At the same time, there's something to be said for somebody being honest. And I sometimes review stuff on my website just because I've had a great time or a bad time with a game. And I want to talk about that experience and why I think it went off the rails. I don't... I don't know that that's fair sometimes. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sounding like a hypocrite, but I don't think I should be talking about that stuff. I, I think there's something to be gained by hearing my perspective on it because I'm in the industry and I know how things get made. But I think there's something unfair too because what if I just don't like that company and you don't know because I'm keeping all that a secret? In order for – there has to be this sort of this um, – what sort of word? I'm looking at transparency, right, between – who's making what and doing what in order for that to work, if that makes sense. If a journalist is going to sit down and review one of my games, I think people should probably know that he's a friend of mine or she's a friend of mine. I I don't I don't see how it's – I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of meandering off topic now. Um, uh, I, I, it's a hard question to answer. I, as a publisher, I think I just want people to be fair. I think they. I want their gut reaction, right? Because this is a gut reaction hobby. The things that you buy are supposed to satisfy 
all parts of your brain, all parts of your soul, if you're just reviewing it on the merits of whether or not it tickled your binary functions in the left side of your brain, you're not giving anybody a fair review because not every gamer is you. True. So I, I think it's more important for people to get an understanding of how the game affected you, what you got out of it, rather than, oh, well, I found the math in this part of the game was sloppy, and I really wish that it had been 1.5 to 1 ratio instead of the 1.33 that they've chosen. And I, That's not helpful. That's, that's your own bias. Very, very true indeed. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, ethics in blogging and podcasting. Where do you think are we at the moment as, a, as an author? I, I think we're in a weird stage, right? The industry is so fractured right now, and it's just going to get more fractured. We're becoming more and more of a hobby. I keep getting more and more advice from people telling me how I should be conducting myself online or who I should be talking to or how I should promote my games. You're not buying my personality. You're buying my games, right? I think it's great if our personalities coincide and we get along, but the the hobby's getting so fractured in so many ways and everybody's falling into their own camps. I I think everything's going to go the route of RPG net where certain reviewers only get attention from certain fans. And people are only only gonna migrate to the pieces of the industry that they want to go to. We're gonna see less crossover. And eventually you're just gonna have camps of people that only buy product from specific companies and they're only gonna follow those reviewers who like and are fanboys of those companies. They could be fangirls, but fanboy is a colloquial term. And do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a bad thing, to be honest. I, I used to work I've worked at three different game stores when I was in my twenties. And I loved being around games all day long and talking games with everybody that came in the store and seeing just the wide array of products. I love miniature games and I love war games, right? But all I make are role-playing games. I don't think anybody would know that looking at my products that I actually like war games. Um, and how am I supposed to keep up with everything that's going on in, at GMT if all the reviewers that are on the sites that I go to are constantly talking about Pathfinder or they're constantly talking about Savage Worlds or they're constantly talking about Shadowrun, how are we supposed to keep up with anything else that's going on there? We, we need to start cross-pollinating again and we're going in the opposite direction. And I think a lot of that is because of how geek subcultures work. And journalism is kind of fighting all that. They just want to keep everybody happy. They just want, they want to be a popular, you want to be a popular reviewer. So you say things that are popular. Um, being critical is easy, but being saying something meaningful and important for a product is is so difficult to get the right terminology there. I think everybody just turns into these gushing these gushing fans, and we only follow the people that are saying the things we want to say. I could be wrong. I don't analyze this enough, but I see that being a trend. I see that being where it's going based on so many other promulgating factors, such as how the industry conducts itself in general, right? Um, I've sent out product to friends of mine to review. I sent out King for a Day. Mm -hmm. You liked King for a Day. Yep. Um, I sent out King for a Day to one of my friends on Facebook, and I'm not going to name names, but he gave me a less than, um, less than five stars on it, right? When everybody had been giving me five stars. And I read his review, and I thought, okay, well, that's fair. Everything he said about it is fair. I'm glad it's not gushing. That would have been 
inappropriate. But at the same time, some of the things that he complained about didn't seem like legitimate complaints either. So what do I do about that? Right? He's his kind of player, his kind of thing. And he probably, in the first place, shouldn't have been reviewing my product because it's not something he would have played. So how do we... We're, I don't know how we fix that. What right? Do we have specialized reviewers, and you know, you when you're reading Bob Jones's review or Carol's Jones's review, that you know that uh, this is what kind of game he or she normally likes, and that they have no cross pollination to anything else. You see, but I think that should be the responsibility of the author or the company to find out who is going to be likely to appreciate, not to give you a good review, but to appreciate. Your game. I was having this conversation in Australia with with in Facebook recently with Angus Abinson and Andrew Peregrine about what makes a good review or a bad review. And people mistake very very often, as in almost always, a good review is one that gives you a good opinion, and a bad review is a is a is one that gives you a bad opinion of the game. And right. I don't think that's right. true at all. No, no, I agree with you there. I think a good review is one that really shows that somebody understood the product, got in there, played it and understood the crunch and they don't have questions when it's done they shouldn't you shouldn't as a reviewer have any questions that you're throwing back other than really i don't know why they made this decision but you should be you're the sort of the gatekeeper right between the product and people's money if you're a reviewer and it's your job to give them information and not tell them what to do they need to have the information so they can decide for themselves is this something in my wheelhouse and I think, yeah, you're right. A bad review would be one that doesn't really do anything critical and just says, all right, another Captain America comic book is out. Woo, in this one, Captain's got a red shield. That's a horrible review of a comp- Captain America comic book. Awful. Correct. But the thing is that people would consider that to be, a, I mean, most people, bo- both readers and authors, of course, they would consider that to be a good review. Uh, and and I, I, I'm not sure how to educate. And I think educate is a really patronizing word and people are going to, tell me off for using it but how do you um, steer educate or simply set up the ground ethics and I suppose training techniques I don't know how to call it that will enable people to actually write good reviews and not just good or bad opinions how do you do that because at the moment we are in a completely free-for-all environment in which people are doing this as a hobby and some people last longer than others and there are some people who are making a, a business out of it and, and that has its own connotations that we can talk about in a minute um, but it, it is a very I'm not going to again it's, it's really difficult policing uh, regulating uh, guidelining it what, what, what's, what's the right what's the right way to do what's the, I, how do we do it, it's, it's really complicated right it what is the value of the review? I, as a publisher, only need and want reviewers – and I'm, I'm being cynical here, so allow me to my, – my cynical stick here for a second. I only need and want reviewers to the extent that they help me sell and promote my product, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to be around that, and I actually like reviewers and I like everyone. So I'm just – again, l- allow me the, the hypothesis here. I only want them around because they might say something good or they might get some conversation going about my product. The best reviewers in that context are ones that are going to stir the pot and get people talking about my product, whether it's good or bad. At the end of the day, you as a publisher want to grow as big as Star Wars, so you don't care what the reviewers say anymore. right? So the reviewer is only 
in the sense of the publishing world and in the sense of yeah, and video games are probably this way too, right? Call of Duty doesn't care what score they get in a magazine. Call of Duty 17 is going to sell just as well as Call of Duty 16. Hmm. They've outgrown reviewers. They've outgrown the news cycle. They don't need any of that PR push. They just put it out and people go, holy crap, there's a new Call of Duty and everybody knows about it. Um, I, I think... I was just listening to this on the radio, people talking about how bad reporters are that work at the White House, right? The ones that ask questions of the in the press conferences, that they don't really do their job anymore. Okay. I don't think that they're supposed to do their job anymore, to be honest. I think the whole point is is that the media has just become an extension of marketing. Media is not a standalone entity anymore. Everything is about how to get information out in this noise-filled, cumbersome environment and getting above that. So if we want to talk about ethics and journalism, then we have to rebuild the whole thing. We have to start expecting more, right? And if we don't want more and we just want product and we just want when's the next Magic the Gathering expansion coming out, then we just want the media telling us what the press release said. So that's basically good. Yeah, that, that's just a glorified advertising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, like I said, I'm being cynical, right? I'm, I'm absolutely being cynical. I would, I, I, I really resisted. We, we've talked about this before: marketing and the gaming industry and community building and all that. And I've really resisted the idea of community building because, while I love going online and talking about games, I like spending my day writing. I like spending my day doing graphics. I like my spending my day making more games. And if I'm spending time online talking in communities, and reminding people that I'm a thing that I exist then I'm not making product. But I think I'd much rather do that than lie to an interviewer just to convince somebody that my pogs are better than your pogs. Which is fair enough. And, and that it's a completely different conversation about who is meant to be the game's promoter. Uh, but then I guess that it should be, as well, the media. Because the media used carefully and, and used wisely is a fantastic means of word of mouth that people get to trust. And reviewers are the perfect means to do that. So it's, it's a bit of a vicious circle in here. Right. You know, and and the, me the media is a business too, right? I mean, well, some of these sites, some people do it out of love, right? There's tons of, of blogs and weblogs out there and podcasts. These people are doing it out of love. And I absolutely adore going and talking to them and spending time. But a lot of people are just doing it as a way to make money. They want to just, you know, it's just another outlet for money. Dice Tower has become a business. Yes. It didn't start as a business, but it's now a business now. And they've got eight reviewers that work for them. And Tom's still the most popular, and Tom's voice sings out above all of them. But it's become a business now. And so it, it has a different responsibility than it had five years ago. And so, you know, you'll have people approaching you say, do you want to buy ad space on my channel? Do you want to buy ad space on my website? And if you do, I'll give you a positive review on my site. Or at least I'll review your product. If you don't buy ad space, you'll never get reviewed. And so that becomes a really slippery slope too. It, we're all, we all, it all feels like instead of us working together to build a community, we're constantly chewing on our own tails. Yes, and, and I, I have to admit, I do have quite a problem with that sort of technique you know if, if you buy if you don't buy space in my website then you your books don't get reviewed and your games don't get reviewed uh, and if you pay me for the review then i will be kinder than if you don't um 
I, I really have a massive, massive problem with that. I mean, for, for me, there are two types of reviews. Well, one type of website I never re review from, and one type of review that I will never, ever trust. The, the type of website is the kind of websites who tells you, I only publish positive reviews. Right. If that's all you do, then I am really not interested because I am never going to be able to find a balanced view on a product because I'm only going to be able to find one review and it's always going to be positive. So I'm always going to find things to like, the things that you like. So it's a bit, mm, I don't like that. And a paid review, I'm sorry, that automatically becomes an advert. Right. Even if you right. say negative things about anything, that becomes an advert. And I am not interested. I don't have time to waste for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, and I, there's actually people now that will play test your game if you pay them. There's teams of people who do this. And I, I think that that's just another version of of the the marketing machine, right? I'm not really paying you to, to play test my game. I'm play, paying you to go out there, play my game, and talk about it before the game's even going. It's just another way to promulgate this process of people talking and adding to the noise of my product. I don't really think that it's... I, I think maybe people are getting useful information back, but I would think if I, if I did that, if I hired somebody to play test my games, 75% of my money I know is going into just creating more buzz. I'm not, I'm not really interested in all of your playtest notes back because usually playtest notes aren't useful. Aren't they? No, not really. No. I mean, I've sat down with enough. If, you, if you're not sitting down and playing the game yourself as the designer, you have no idea what they did with it and how they went wrong and what rule they misinterpreted or whatnot when they're sending you playtest notes back. Some of the things that they ask you to change are just biases. Um, it's not that the game is unbalanced or broken. So you really need to, as a designer, when you're getting playtest. You need to do it yourself. Okay. Well, that's, that should be another podcast. Uh, yeah, well, I went off the rails a little bit there. But yeah, I, I think I think that that whole process, if you're paying somebody for a review or you're paying somebody for a playtest, you you just want, it's just to create more buzz. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. And as I said earlier, for me, that's what the reviews, I am just not interested at all. And, and I have never, ever, ever taken a penny to write a review for anybody. Ever. Some people well, have advertised on my website, and more often than not, I have to admit, more often than not, it's free advertising. I, I, I rarely ever charge, uh, yeah. whether it's a big or small company, it doesn't bother me. And some people give me games, and some people don't give me games, and I have absolutely no issue whatsoever to say when the game came for free or not. None no, all. yeah, I, you you actually extended that courtesy to me once, and I really appreciate it. I thought it was awesome. I, I didn't ask for it, and that's the other thing. I think companies that go around asking for this sort of free treatment or you know i can always give away a pdf it doesn't cost me anything to give you a pdf for you to review something but to say i'm only going to send it to you if i get something in return is i don't know seems kind of seedy yeah i mean i i don't get me wrong i have had people who told me games are hard and expensive to produce if i give you the game are you gonna review it because i can't afford to waste it Right. And I've said, of course I will. It's, yeah. it's the least I can do. And, you know, when people give me a game, especially a board game, I do the unboxing video and we record the podcast and we do a yep. written review. Uh, I talk about it and tweet about it and Facebook about it, whether it's good or bad. Right. Okay, really, it, it's, it makes no difference whatsoever. I, I will do exactly the same for every single game that's, that's given to me. Um, but I think that's just fair. 
to to work for the amount of material you've been given, but not if I give you a game, are you going to give me a good review? No, right. No, no, I will give you a review. Whether it's good or bad, that's that's a chance you have to take. Whether you trust in your game or not, it's a different matter altogether. And, and if you've listened to any of my podcasts, you'll know what kind of games not to give me. <laughs> right. Right. And I, th I think that's kind of important, too. I mean, I've got a list of people that I can send product to. Um, but some of them haven't reviewed the material I've sent them, and that happens. Um there's a lot of them actually and a lot of them aren't there's not a lot of crossover either some of them are only board gamers and some of them are only role-playing podcasts or bloggers or whatever and so i have to know who i'm contacting before i send them a press release otherwise i'm just pissing them off yes so that that happens so so there you go i mean what 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 Dude, what do we do about this ethics thing? Because at the moment, I I, I really don't believe that we have a very ethical um, media in in gaming. I don't think we have a very ethical media in anything, though. But but yeah, but don't go off the rails. I understand. I, Fox I'm is not coming, trying to go off the rails. But <laughs> let's talk about media and gaming for goodness. We're looking at a microcosm inside of a macrocosm that's already polluted. So I. Think we're just borrowing from already polluted ideas, and until we go back to being just a fun hobby, and we stop having these giant booths at conventions that are always shouting and three thousand dollar page ads inside expensive magazines, and, and until it stops being about chasing every single dollar because you want to break out and make your product seven million dollars, that's that that sort of that's always going to happen. It's like payola in the mu in the music industry back in the 60s, 50s and 60s, right? People getting paid to play music on the radio. It, that's just the nature of capitalism, I think. That's just people are always going to try to use their money and their influence to get better results. Yeah, but you're going to blame I don't, people I don't have a solution. That. I guess I'm saying I don't have a solution. I mean, I, I think you're going to blame people for saying that. I mean, I can understand people wanting to have a Kickstarter that will make $700,000. Sure. Or eight. I, I'm not blaming anybody for that. I would love it if my Kickstarter did better, right? I'm out there every day right now pimping the new one but i i'm not going i don't ever want to do it in a, in a way that i'm going to question myself at the end of the day because i, I want to make games i want to make for lack of a better word art right i i'm creating something from nothing and I, if, if that is tainted in any way by my tactics or my ethics ugh, i don't know i don't why am i doing it at all so basically, you're saying that we are never going to have an ethical media in gaming. Is that what you're saying? I, you're ethical. We have people that are holdouts that want to do things right. We're always going to be. You had a disclaimer at the front saying there's certain things I can't talk about anymore. There's certain things I can't do on the show anymore. Right? I probably should say half of the things that I say online. Um, if I had any sense, uh, somebody. Some, if I had other interests, right? If I worked for a company that was a competitor with Shadowrun, I probably shouldn't say half the things that I say about Shadowrun. Um, but I don't. I'm not a competitor of Shadowrun. So the things I say about Shadowrun, they're either me just, you know, taking the piss or it's me actually giving you my honest opinion on what I think of something like Shadowrun and how I think it could be better. I was on a panel with the guy that's a line developer for... Shadowrun, and I told him during the panel, I said, hey, just so you know, every week I make fun of your game, and it's not because the world is bad, it's simply because I don't like what you guys have done with the mechanics. I think it's silly. I bet they love and, 
Well, yeah, yeah. He he doesn't even know who I am. Which of course, was, it doesn't. <laughs> who does? Which was yeah, which was hilarious. But I I felt the need to tell him, and I think that that's important. I think that openness. We need to get past the point where we can't be frank. Maybe that's where media ethics comes in. Where. Well, yeah, well, but the thing I, I reckon the people don't appreciate when you be frank because I know how many times I get into trouble when I am frank. Um, yeah. So there you go. Uh, anyway, talking about frankness, because we we are really extending ourselves, and I would like to invite our view or viewers. But they don't they don't view us. They listen <laughs> to us. Our listeners to actually. Tell us what you think. You know, join us in Twitter and Facebook or Google Plus or whatever. It doesn't matter as long as you tell us where you are and who you are and what you're saying. We'll reply and, and talk and be nice to you sometimes, more often than not. <laughs> At least me. <laughs> yeah, I'm never going to be nice. I feel that we've gone into a place where we're not... I, I think we're usually a kind of an authority on what we're talking about, or we have at least a perception of authority on what we're talking about. I think what we're talking about now is you're going to have a hundred different divergent opinions. Yeah. And they're probably all right. I mean, I, I can't imagine somebody being wrong about their perception. Um, but we actually talked about ethics and journalism instead of making it about something else and sending people hateful threats. Well, let's not even go into that one. I mean, that, that is absolutely, I mean, no, no, no. 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 Anyway, but, but to be honest, I think no one, and this is possibly the problem, I, th I don't think anyone is at the moment an authority on the matter, at least not within the board game and RPG media. I'm not going to talk about any other media because it's, it's more mature than we are in terms of time and in terms of investment and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, you know. But I don't think there is anyone out there who is an authority in what an ethical blog or an ethical podcast should be and how uh, the tabletop gaming media should behave and, and should um, basically act. Um, and, and even the professional magazines, you know, uh, like uh, Casual Gamer or Spielbox, even those you look at them sometimes and you think, really, I'm not sure this is the sort of thing that should be done. But hey, who is to tell what is meant to be done or not? And I think that is a big issue that will not be resolved in, in many years to come because we are all amateurs at the end of the day. We're most of us doing this for the love of it. And people get very pissed off when anybody else tells them, I don't think you're doing this the right way. They take it very personally because this is a very passionate hobby. Yeah, well, okay. We can talk about that for just a second. Yes. I've made, I've made somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 products in my tenure in the gaming industry and I've been involved with numerous others at this point if somebody didn't like one of them it probably wouldn't hurt my feelings there's no way somebody's going to like all 200 things that I've made it's impossible no absolutely um, I think if it's your first thing into the industry and somebody gives you a bad review your ego is wrapped up in that first thing I think that that's the hard pill to swallow is you you get these myopic lenses on as you're finishing a, your first product that you've you've got the next Magic the Gathering or you've got the next Mousetrap. And in effect, you've just got yet another game. And if you sell out of your two, 3,000 copies, you were really lucky. Um, and I think when people hear that, when that reality hits them, that first bad review that they get or that first negative comment, that criticism, that critique, I think it hits pretty hard. I don't know. Well, we'll see what I, happens with, with your, your game. True. I'll give it a negative review and we'll see how you respond. Well, you won't be giving them a, a, a negative. <laughs> a, it won't be my game. 
Um, it would be a game from another company that I just happen to like very much. Otherwise, I'm not going to promote it. Right. And um, yeah, I don't care what you think. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There's ethics and journalism. <laughs> we just we just figured it out. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, let's uh, let's wrap it up. You are a gang asking for money. Yeah, I'm always more protocol games. Somebody should just adopt me. Yeah, more protocol games. Dude, stop it. More protocol games. Yeah, I think these are better than the first ones, and I'm not just saying that because that's what people do with sequels. But I really pushed the envelope in terms of what they're about this time. Okay. Well, firstly, how are they going to be different? Because I just finished reading the first book the, with, the, with the protocol games that you found, and I found two bugbears with them. Two bugbears? Yeah. Okay. Um, one... Some of the topics are very, very difficult to relate to and, and imagine why would I even want to have a story here? How the hell am I going to make a story with this? Right. What for? What's the point? Uh, give me an example. Can you give me an example of one you yes, didn't like? Yes, there's one. I cannot remember the title, but there's one that takes place in the rundown Chicago of the 1970s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sky Race. Yes. And I thought, why on earth would I want to do this? There's, 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 what's sure. the point? There are some much, much better games out there. Why bother? Uh, much better uh, protocol games, I mean. It was just an idea that tickled me. It was an idea when I was fleshing out the, the realm of the first 25 or 30. I don't know how many you have in your book. Well, you um, told me you gave me the book. Well, you didn't give me the book because I paid for it. But <laughs> no, there, there was a certain backing level that only got all 30. Yeah, so. that would be me because I love giving you money. Yeah, awesome. Then you got all 30. So, I mean, some of it was me exploring what the system could do. I wonder some of it was, was me making... I mean, there's some in there I don't even like, right? I'll be honest. I don't like Virtuox, number 15. I will never play it. Um, but I, the, the, the backers voted for that one. That's the one they wanted. And then when I got around to writing it, I wasn't inspired as much as I should have been. And so I'll, I, I have no problem being honest and saying, avoid that one. Um, but I think Skyrise is going to tickle people in a certain way. I've played Coyote. Coyote is probably the hardest one to play and the weirdest to play. But I got the deepest, darkest story out of Coyote. Hmm. So I think looking at them just on their veneer and just going, oh, that doesn't sound like something I want to play. The I think you're missing out. I think that I I think that at the very least, me asking you to play for just two hours and explore with me what I've tried to create with some of these games – that's not asking a lot from somebody that's been in the industry that long, as long as I have. Hmm. Right? Okay. I'm not, I, I, and I'm being honest, right? The Virtuox is bad, so avoid that one. But I'm saying Skyrise is going to give you a different kind of cut of uh, slice of life kind of story than you're used to, and you may take it to places that yeah, are I meaningful. Mean, yeah, okay, okay. I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not saying that the, the game doesn't have what it takes to actually give you a good story. I'm just saying that it didn't really tickle me at all. It was just a bit. It doesn't sound exciting. It doesn't sound attractive enough for me to want to spend the time trying out to figure out what's going to happen yeah, if I play the game. Yeah, I respect that. I respect that. You're right. It doesn't on the on the surface. It doesn't. It sounds stupid. On the surface, it sounds stupid and boring. I agree with you. But I think that there's a meaningful story underneath. Oh, probably, absolutely. Yeah. Now the second bugbear I have with it, you have stripped every single word in those games that could influence how people play the game. You're just literally telling people this is a scenario in one or two paragraphs. Yeah. These are some of the characters that you can play and the names of the characters or whatever, they are all for flavor. They are not really for you to get any mechanical advantage. 
then you tell people just one word that comes out with the value of the card that they draw. Right. And that's it. You, you're leaving so, 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 so much <laughs> to the player right. that people with a little bit less imagination or simply less experienced, they will be absolutely... What? The book is peppered with examples of how to frame scenes. But they're too, they're too small. You, you only well, give five, right. seven and if sentences. Them, if that. The book's already 300 pages. How much more... Yeah, but it's barely... Much bigger? Well, it's not a matter of making it bigger. It really is not a matter of making it bigger. I just felt some of this... If you had given me, for example, a short story at the beginning, mm. that would give me some sort of... To kickstart my imagination to get oh right okay so this is how it could be played if if the the sentences that you give to give some flavor which are better things that have happened when you were playing the game and you were playtesting them or whatever um then they're not enough to really get me in the mood there were just a couple of them that i read and thought oh okay now i can see myself at this i can relate to this character i can i can understand this situation i thought you stripped everything so bare of any kind of uh, subjective or even objective meaning or objective or objectivity you left so much to the to the player that some people will struggle with some games very very much um you're you're uh you're you're right. You're partially right. I guess your your point of view is correct. I think that um, one of the things you're missing one is that I I made they're three dollar games. They're very short. They're designed to be played in just a few hours. And if you've played something like Fiasco, you're already familiar with this style of gameplay. Yes. Um, if if you're not, it even suggests in the front here's a document to go look up. Um, and read online that I've written. It's about eight pages, and it tells you how GMless games work. The other thing is that I was going for with this is that I don't want, I don't like it when games sit there. Not all the time, anyway. I think there's games that need it, but I don't like it when a game comes in and tells me this is the way you have to play this, and this is the only way to play it. Lastly, I when I when I sit down, I play something like Fiasco or a lot of different scene framing games. You're left in a lurch as to what you're supposed to do when you're directing a scene, and I think the prompts and the cards get you there faster. I just ran a game online on Google Hangouts two weekends ago, um, and I I was teaching four guys, and I barely got involved. They were all all over the the country. And they're all playing online on Google Hangouts. And they got it. They got it instantly and they just started going. And the cards just were coming up in the right way at the right time to inspire their imagination. And there was really no downtime while people were thinking what to do. They knew exactly what they wanted to do when it was their turn. And yeah, but I think any role... Is that going to be difficult for people that aren't as creative? Yes, but all role-playing games are very difficult for people that aren't as creative. D&D gives you the crutch of, well, I'm just going to swing my sword this turn. Yes. But if people are creative, they get more descriptive of what how they're swinging their sword. Okay, so. fair. So how are these games better? How are they going to be different, the ones that you have in Kickstarter at the moment? So they're, they're a little bit longer. They hold your hand a little bit more um, in the setup, in the uh, presentation. The, um, the scene descriptions, when you draw the cards, are a little more poetic sounding. Mm -hmm. They're not just one or two phrases, one or two uh, words to get you going. Some of them are elongated the stories themselves are more complicated 
They're, the very first one of the series is called The Doom King, and it's a cross between Hamlet and Game of Thrones. Um, and I think people are instantly going to gravitate to that because everybody loves Game of Thrones right now. Yeah. And so telling the story of all the people around a king that are is ruining the country, um, they're going to write fantastic stories. And I've run it four times now, and it's everybody's favorite. So um, I know that that one's good. And, and there's going to be a little bit more descriptions. The, the format is cleaner now. Um, everything is on the right kind of spreads and everything. So it's not as clumsily put together. Not that I think the original was clumsily put together, but I've just cleaned up some of the presentation. Okay. Um, and there, oh, uh, last but not least, there's a walkthrough at the end to show you how to set up a game to answer all the questions. Every single book will have its own. Every single adventure or protocol scenario will have its own walkthrough. Uh, specifically designed to show you how to make characters and answer questions and build relationships. No, that I like an awful lot better, I have to say. How, how many games are you planning or hoping to, to get this time, to make this time? I think we're already up to 18 or 19. Um, at the end, it'll probably be around 25 or 30 again if okay. the protocol does as well as it did last time, as the, the Kickstarter does as well as it did last time. Okay, that sounds pretty exciting. That sounds very, very exciting, I have to say. Which is very good for you. Yeah, I, I'm ex I'm really excited about this series. Um, I mean, we've only been kickstarting for less than a week, and we hit the first two stretch goals on the very first day. And typical Kickstarter is slowing down right now because people are going to wait to see what it does toward the end. Yeah, and so it's, it is November as well, which is a difficult month. It's, if it's going to end up in December, people are thinking it's going to end December before Christmas. Um, I thought about doing it after, ending it after Christmas, and I just thought that was silly. That's a, two dead weeks in the middle that are really dead. Yes. So. And now the, the one thing I'm always very curious, why do you always start with such a low little goal? Is it to make sure that it's going to fund? I It's just more fun for me to chase the straight stretch goals. I think it's more fun for people to see the stretch goals get chased, right? If I only hit a thousand, if I only hit a thousand on this thing, I'd be in a lot of trouble. It would have been really sad. Um, I just... I just find them more fun that way. I think people that set these $50,000 stretch goals are um, uh, bare minimum goals, and then they struggle for four weeks to get there. That's not fun to watch. That's not fun to be involved with. It, it's like rattling a cup in front of people all day long as a beggar, and at the end of the day, you finally get that last dollar that allows you to get what you need. I, I, I mean, that's a horrible metaphor, but that's how it feels when I'm watching these people struggle for a month. Fair enough. Good. Well, I think people should actually seriously take a look at this because I, I thought I, I really, apart from those little bugbears, which, again, they, they're not things that necessarily affect me too much, apart from the finding some of the games not exciting, uh, which I think is perfectly understandable. When you have 30 games, some of them right, you're not right, going right. to find interesting. Yeah. I'm being a little bit too barren of, of flavor. Um, but I thought that the mechanics themselves, just to be able to, to draw the cards and do some cool stuff based on whatever happens, those two words that are meant to be a relationship or a situation or a vignette or whatever, I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Really, really good. Thanks, thanks. I, I'm, I lucked out, to be honest. The design of the games, the design of the original concept took about an hour and I just lucked out. I mean... It just worked the first time. And I, I guess maybe a lot of that's experience. You just know what's going to work and what's not. Hmm. But, wow, I, it would just be so awesome if Protocol could become as well-known as, say, something like Fiasco, if for no other reason than I think it's a better Fiasco. 
Ooh. And I'm not saying that I think it is. I, I'm not saying that because Fiasco is bad. I'm saying that because this is just, this does more things than Fiasco does. Fair enough. Fair enough indeed. I'm not going to say anything one way or another. I think people <laughs> should, should make their minds about that by getting the games and trying them both. There, then, there's that ethics and journalism again. Absolutely. I'm, I'm being very Solomonic here. Buy both games and make up your mind, people. Right, I think we should wrap it up because, believe it or not, it's ten past midnight here and I didn't go to bed last night until two o'clock and I was awake at seven to go to work. So I am really, really tired. All right. I don't think anybody wants to think about you in bed, Paco. I'm not sure about that. I think some people would love to think of me in bed. I'd say name one, but I don't want an answer. Don't no, no, I'm not going to say who because, you know, yeah. that's, that's unethical. Yeah, that's unethical. <laughs> Oh, I missed Vicky, Vicky this week. That's true, but she was in Portland, Oregon. Because, you know, how many Portlands do you have? We have, uh, and two that I know of. Oh, right, okay. So There's it makes sense one to in say, every state, though. Oh, well, that's the thing. I know that you Americans like to say, well, I'm in Dallas, Texas. So well, how many Dallas did you have? I know if you didn't see Dallas, <laughs> it's going to be Texas. Now, I'm in Washington, Washington. Well, fine, you have two of those, fair enough. I'm in LA, Florida. I don't, I know he's not in Florida, he's in California. I have two moron, you yeah. know, everything. I, I don't know, I don't know why you always say what... Um, the state is, but never mind. We have, um, everybody thinks that Springfield is the most common city name in America, but it's actually Fairview. There's a Fairview in something like 35 of the states. Really? Yeah. Is there, so when I, you say I'm in Fairview, you have to tell people what state you're in. And is it actually a, a Fairview where you get, or is it some, some dump? It's probably a, a tiny little town. All right. Well, some a, a name like that, it's nice. probably a tiny town. Well, I know, but they can be quite nice, you know, Pinterest and all that, unless it's just a trailer. Uh, you know, I'm going to shut up because I, I am not going to be able to go to Gen Kong ever if I keep talking. I'm not going to be yeah, living yeah, to the country. Why don't you talk about some trailer trash towns? That, yeah. That'll go really well. <laughs> you should I make a protocol like with that. Quaint, I love quaint little towns. I actually prefer them to big cities. Well, you should make a protocol with, you know, trailer camps. I am, uh, okay, I guess you'll be the first to know. I'm actually working on a game. Uh, set in a small little town. It's not a protocol. It will be a game with a game master and everything else. You live in a small town and you've never left it, and you're exploring why you never left it. Oh, okay, that's interesting. So that's all I'm going to say for now. But it is actually called Fairview, which is how I knew everything we were talking about. Good. Well, I very much look forward to that uh, as much as I am looking forward to getting into bed for obvious reasons. <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening. Production for this podcast has been by Paco Garcia and the music's been composed by Kev Adset. We would love to hear from you. Feedback and your questions are always welcome and you can email us at podcast.gmsmagazine.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at GMS Magazine. And we are also on Facebook and Google+. I'm very, very happy to talk to you. Remember to subscribe to the GMS Magazine podcast channels in iTunes and give us a review or two and a rating, please, and it's truly appreciated if you do. For more quality shows, remember to listen to other rooms like the RPG Room, the Interview Room and the Board Game Room and more rooms that might be coming very soon indeed. But, friends, until the next time, let the games continue. <laughs>